First of all, I am so grateful, Farnoosh. Same. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. I'm oh so God. happy. You have no idea. Like, I think that we are kindred spirits. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> the thing is, I've known about you. And I've seen the stuff you've done. And, you know, it's like I'm I'm impressed. And you do great work in the financial world. But, like, you're a, a beautiful human being. Oh, my gosh. Parlin, thank you. I so enjoy your work. I think you come from this, just this beautiful place. I love, like, you, you, you like, I feel like I need to become a better person after I, like, watch your videos. I'm like, Harlan just knows how to be a good person. Like, and it's just natural to you. No. Um, the advice that you give, it just comes from such a, like, you give hard, you, people ask you hard questions. Yeah. I'm like, how, what's he going to say? Oh, I love that. You know, <laughs> that's so cool. Uh, it's, it's really interesting because someone had a comment, and I know that you do a lot of interacting. You just, you like people. Like, the thing about, thing about me is I am no different than anyone else I just happen to have a microphone and I've been doing the same thing for like 25 years you know yeah. like, I'm messy you know like my life is messy my desk is messy um <laughs> we're not similar in that way I cannot stand a mess <laughs> well I guess really yeah well you know it's interesting because I was I know you do a lot of your own work like you're hands-on and you'll work with partners and and how you yeah. manage that. You know, I have ADHD. Mm -hmm. And um, that's been something. I actually went to a doctor this year because there's so many things that I'm doing that I'm getting so much pleasure out of. And and I really want to serve like wholeheartedly the most efficient way as possible. And I've been able to get away with things pretty well, like the way I've gotten away with it and, and achieve some pretty cool things. But I want to do it cleaner. You know what I mean? I know. You want systems. I do. Yeah. Um, well, I know, first of all, I, I know a little bit about ADHD because my son has it and we're working with him on yeah. on all the things. And it's like, ooh, you know, it's I, I can't speak for him or you, but like as someone who is trying to help someone who has ADHD, yeah. um, well, I guess. You know, on the one hand, they're like, he's super smart. I feel like I tell him, like, it's kind of a superpower, you know, like if you can just harness it um, yeah. because he does have like extreme interest in things. Um, but it's just a matter of like, again, setting him up for success, which eventually he'll have to do for himself. But yeah, that's going to be a bigger part of it. You know, it's just like you have to work a little bit harder at like finding the ways to allow you to be just do you and yeah. not have to worry about, you know anything else it's tricky it's tricky i think especially if you're a parent who's organized and i thought you might be yeah. i thought you might you know have some adhd because i i was someone you know, told me recently that i uh my habit so i'm gonna look into it i mean it's hereditary my my brother has it yeah you know a lot of times people who have so many things going on like one of the superpowers is you get to manage so much and and right. one of the things i noted you had a video recently where you talked about how you do a lot of the things on your own and you've made really specific intentional choices of being the person who maybe does fewer things because you you like to do it and manage it. But fewer things for Farnoosh is like. <laughs> but like, like I but things fewer things for me is like a lot for somebody else. I right. think that. Yeah, that's the superpower mm -hmm. of the ADHD. And then the executive planning piece is, you know, maybe because you were in the honors program in college. And maybe because you've had 
so many supports in place that have helped you with your executive functioning that those other aspects didn't weren't as pronounced where for me and we're going to talk a lot about Farnish's book and, and everything else. I just am excited to be with you. I'm, I'm just so happy. Hey, that, I thought uh, we were recording. I was just like, wait a minute. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, more than anything, you are a person and you are so vulnerable. And I think that's why I just want to share with you, you know, I want to expose one of, one of the fears in the book, Healthy State of Panic, is one of these is the fear of exposure. Oh gosh, the hardest chapter I wrote. This is this is such a good book. I okay, I just talked with my wife a couple minutes ago and you know, I've been doing my podcast for like a good year. I've been doing it for a couple years, but like really serious for like the past six months. And um she was like she was listening to one of the recent ones and she said, I felt like you talked a lot at one point and the guests didn't talk as much. And uh it was really interesting because I don't mind the feedback because I'm still getting my podcast footing. I mean, I've been, I've been interviewing people for years, um, but I, that's exposure. You know, it's like doing, like, am I going to suck at this? And also with you, like, you're so damn good. Like, you're so experienced that I really want to look good in front of you. And I don't want to be exposed for sucking. <laughs> oh, that imposter syndrome. Yeah. Oh, it's everywhere. But everywhere. The fear of exposure is one of the is one of the chapters in there. Why was that so hard for you to write? Well, you can't Google it. And I think because also there's no research. You know, a lot of the other chapters, my um, in my mind, I wanted to approach every chapter like a New Yorker article. Like I'm a journalist, so it's like, yeah. okay, here's the here's the fear, here's the root of it, here's the science, here's why it's normal. And then here are some unexpected truths about it based on what I've experienced, what others have experienced that can be helpful to you as you're navigating through this fear to not feel so defeated. And with the fear of exposure, what I find is that in our culture, especially right now, and maybe you have thoughts on this, it's like we really celebrate the all the transparency and all the like bringing all of yourself everywhere and being vulnerable 365 days a year. And I don't know about that. I think some things are worth keeping to the, you know, to yourself. And I think that not, while I believe in these things to some extent, in some contexts, I think that we have to be careful about what we share, when we share it, and who we share what with. Because the world is not always this like warm and fuzzy place. And if you're somebody who cares about protecting what's important to you, um, there's a there's a degree of 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 discernment that you have to have. We don't learn about this. We just learn we have to be always sharing because that's authenticity. That's the true authenticity, right? We throw that word around a lot. Yeah. And we don't give people like actually the rules or like the how to of that so that they can step into that role, but but like also balance that with being someone who is care- being careful about what they're sharing because you don't want it to backfire, you know, and we unfortunately live in a world where there just isn't a lot of room for nuance or discussion. There's cancel culture and you can get in the crosshairs of that unknowingly, un- undeservingly. And so as the guardian of yourself, you have to be at the, like really careful about that. Like I was in a, a maybe, and I'm, now I'm, I feel like I'm talking too much, but no, I was at- wonderful. <laughs> I want people to understand because exposure and 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 being seen for who you are 
I mean, that it's being naked emotionally, socially, yeah. physically, financially, in all aspects of our life. And if we aren't comfortable looking in the mirror in our rawest form, and we expose something and the expectation is someone's going to still love us or protect us or respond a certain way and they don't, we're going to be hurt. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one reason why I wanted to write that chapter was because I think that's a universal fear. We And it, and it comes, it, it follows the chapter on rejection, which they're kind of close cousins. Yeah. Because when you fear exposure, you're, you're also feeling is this fear of rejection. Yeah. And I remember being at a conference, I was on a panel about negotiating and I guess touche, somebody in the audience got up and said, Farnish, how much do you make? And I was like, um, I don't, you know, I, I, I yeah. appreciated the question, but I felt like it was putting me on the spot and in a room where I didn't know most of the people. And, um, I just didn't feel like it was appropriate to share, but I said to the person, I, I can, respect the question lets you and I get a coffee if there's something I can help you with if, the, yeah. if my being transparent can be helpful to you I'd rather do that one-on-one -on -one. and we did we went downstairs to Starbucks and had a coffee about it and we're still in touch and it's been great and others joined so I do believe in sharing and being honest and transparent it's just that you got to be careful about how you do it who you do it with and the reasons you're doing it yeah I love how you share that in the book and, and the story that you you just shared uh I heard you share this because I listened to the audiobook as well as oh, yeah. I love the audiobook. You did a terrific job. Thank you. I I had a great producer. He was great. Uh, yeah. It was really good. It was good. And uh <laughs> you know, it's it's so interesting because I, I walked into the book and and you know, I listened. It's it's I I try to read, I try to listen. And what I what I do is I I have the book. But then I have the audio book and I'll go back and forth oh, cool. and it helps me to really absorb it. And I want to state for everyone really early in our conversation that I think every college student should read this book. Every first year student should read this book. I'm going to put this on my recommended. I'm going oh to champion gosh. this book because, well, it's just, you know, Farnoosh, you, you do something so wonderful and you make it okay for people to be imperfect. You, you normalize discomfort. You know, I feel like we could call this the the imperfectionist conversation because, like that, that part of our life and existence is something that that we struggle with. And I love, like, I love that you went to Penn State. Like, it's such, yeah. it's so great that you went to Penn State because one of the things that I love, like, I was looking, I was like, damn, she went to Penn State. And I loved it because Penn State is a school that has like oh, 50,000 people, 60,000 people from all different backgrounds. Yeah. I love that you were in the honors program because I always tell people honors programs are the ultimate hack. Will you tell people, mm -hmm. you know, I want them to understand your rejection story. This is the fear of rejection chapter. And you, and you have all these great anecdotes yeah. about your life and so many of them are focused on college experiences that were foundational in helping you to become who you are. So can you go to to that particular moment, the college acceptance rejection? I mean, I got rejected from 80% of the schools I applied to. I was fourth in my class. I had decent SAT scores, not great, but, you know, passable. And 
enough to get into an honors college, let's just say at Penn State, but not to get into Harvard or anywhere else for that, like at that level. But my school was a blue ribbon school. They really hyped us up. They told us we could like shoot for the stars. The kids in the previous senior class had gotten into so many Ivy Leagues and so many of those students didn't have the resume and the work that I did. I just, I don't know. I think I just got sold a false bill of goods and I applied to all these really high caliber schools. And I got into a few of them, but by and large, none of the rest. And Penn State was at the very bottom of the of the list. And it was, the only reason I applied to Penn State was because my father, at one point, I didn't really involve my parents in the application process. And I was like, I got this. And But my dad turned to me one day and he said, can I have the list of where you're applying and what these schools cost? And I said, don't worry, dad, the student that my my teachers say there's this thing called student loans and it's you don't need to know what they cost because we'll just get student loans and he said to hell we will you know we're <laughs> we don't take out debt for college my dad is iranian and so is my mom and he came to america on a full ride to get you know his studies done and all the way through his phd so i thought he was biased i said you know dad that was a different time there's no you know i'm not going to get a full full ride uh, you got to do student loans and he said no Okay, he said, listen, I got to cash flow this out of my salary. So I don't think you're going to be able to go with these sticker prices to any of these schools. So he said, let's apply to Penn State because we're in state. We were living in Pennsylvania at the time. And it's a great school. He said, you know, if you want to go to graduate school, which you're Iranian, so you will, um, you need to go to a school where they have a really good research department and where you can learn anything you want. And Penn State is a really great feeder school for graduate programs. They have their own great graduate program. I was like, he's just like, Dad, stop talking about graduate school. I just want to get into college. Just stop right. it. And he said, please just do this so I can sleep at night. And you will definitely get into Penn State. And I, and then I applied to the honors program because it felt for me like that was the the sort of sweet spot where I was. What I didn't like about Penn State at the time, where I thought I wouldn't like, was that it was fifty thousand students big and had I was always a, I wanted a, the small liberal arts college and the honors college was that liberal, liberal arts experience within a gigantic campus where my class sizes were you know 20 and I did ha I did have some big you know 400 person classrooms at the at, at when I was doing my gen eds but um, a lot of, I got early access to applying for my my courses, which was really at Penn State and a lot of state schools, very competitive. You you can't take your classes because you were not the first one to sign up. And I got to live in a dorm with um, other honors students as well as I got like a little bit of both. You know, I got mm -hmm. the the honors kids who were nerdy and really, you know, type A. And then I got the kids who wanted to go to football games and in party and um, I think that's important. I think I didn't recognize the value in both of those exposures um, at that age. I thought that I had to just kind of pick a lane. And honestly, now that I'm saying all this out loud, I'm like, oh, my God, that was when I learned that you don't have to pick a lane. And right. it kind of led to my career path and being an entrepreneur. But uh, it was financially a great move. I was but I was kicking and screaming all the way there. You know, I just thought that this was such a rejection for me i didn't i was like why why did i work so hard if this That's was going to be it so this wasn't your dream no um it wasn't my dream after the after the second year of being at penn state i had friends i was doing fine but i just felt like 
no, this isn't for me. And I, I remember going home during winter break and my mom and I had talked about it and she said, listen, I don't, and I don't think transferring is the answer here. I think that um, you're taking on too much at Penn State. Here's what was happening. I think I was so unhappy that I was overwhelming my schedule with things. I was like, if, you know, I can't have any downtime here. I need to just have three jobs and take, I want to get out of here as fast as possible. So I'm taking 24 credits. Yeah. And of course I was upset and depressed and sad by the end of winter break. And I came home, my mom said, I don't think Penn State's the problem. I think you're the problem. I think you're doing too much. I want you to take next semester and just take 15 credits. Take 12 to 15 credits, the bare minimum. Right. Don't over don't overwhelm your schedule. Have some free time. Um, do one extracurricular, not ten. Yeah. Quit your jobs, and see what happens. If you still don't like Penn State at the end of that, well, we can talk about next steps. But I think that it's not the school; it's your approach. Yeah. To college. Yeah, uh, that that's something that we talk about a lot, and there's been lots of different experts that come in and say it's not where you go; it's what you do when you're there. Yeah. And a lot of times the dream school ideal is someone or something is going to create something for me. And if I go there, then the dream school is going to manifest. And I'm a firm believer that if you don't get into a dream school, uh, that's a gift in many ways, which comes back to a stealthy, uh, uh, comes back to a healthy state of panic. And this is follow your fears to build wealth crush your career, and win at life. And Farnesha's book really goes through just the foundational fears and obstacles that prevent us from really acknowledging our truths that keep us from reaching our potential. And mm -hmm. you do such a wonderful job of going through all the different fears. And, and I'm, you know, for our conversation, I was just pulling out a lot of the college-related ones because there are just so many, but just for, for everyone to get a sense of the framework of the book, it's the fear of rejection. And for anyone who's listened to me, you know, I'm obsessed with rejection and I have to share with you, you know, for risk of sharing too much, Farnoosh, I have to share this. And I, and I want to get you, I'm going to get you my winner learn book. I don't know if you've seen this or know about this one. I may no. give this, I'm so, so I feel so blessed and so grateful that I could be in a place to share something that I think will help people. And your book, of course, is great. And and you sent this to me, like you reached out and sent it to me, which was so great because I wouldn't have read this otherwise. Oh, I have to be honest. Yeah. Thank like, you. I, I, I thought, I think of you as like financial, you know, really, you know, your so money podcast is, is you know, so well known, been doing this for, for years and all your work with CNBC and your, sh and your show. And it's amazing. And when I read the book, I was confused at first. Okay. Yeah. I know you mentioned this, like why you even you know share this in the book, but I was confused. I'm like, okay, when's the money stuff coming? But then what happened is I, I was like, damn, this is good. And this is interesting. And I'm learning about Farnoosh. And then I was so pulled into the emotions and all the different aspects that go into really creating a life where you have the foundation that I was just so, so pulled into this. And I know I'm jumping at two things where I wanted to share the rejection piece, but I want to understand when you propose this book, and I understand that Matt, it, it kind of 
came about after your your stand up, you know, experience. <laughs> but when when this book came to fruition, this idea, because this is different than what you usually do. How did you even think through that, and how did you how did you prepare to put this out into the world? It was hard. I was scared. I thought people wouldn't take it seriously. They would be very confused. People in, you know, people like to compartmentalize people. Like you're the college expert. You're the yep. money expert. You're the, you know, and we're not allowed to play outside of the box, outside of that sandbox. And I've written three other financial books. I've had, I've said everything I want to say about personal finance. And this time, if I'm going to write a book, this has been now my fourth book, but I've, I've not written in nine years a book. In that time, I've had a podcast. I've become a mom and you know life's been holding in other directions and I've been you know I've not been enthused to write a book but I will say that turning 40 and now having the body of work that I do and talking about money every single day for the last 20 years with so many different people I'm learning that what we're really talking about is life we're not just talking about numbers like we're talking about our feelings we're talking about our families we're talking about our fears and so I wanted to write in this book. Uh, honestly, I felt like I was completely shepherded throughout this process. I wasn't like I woke up one day and I was like, I want to write a fourth book. It started with doing stand-up comedy, <clears throat> putting that little clip on Facebook, talking about my family and all the like ironies of being the daughter of immigrants, a breadwinner, et cetera. And a literary agent reached out who I had known, but you know, got really excited about this material. And she said, do you have more of this written down and I said it's all in my head she goes well please start writing and so I didn't <laughs> like a lot of I was really excited that she was excited but then I went back to my life and I said I don't have time and then the pandemic happened and then she kept calling on me and she said okay now I want you to really write so I started writing and it started out as really just her vision this literary agent which it wasn't my vision but I was right. into it I was like oh she, I was like, you think you can sell a memoir? Wild. Yeah. You think you, you think you can sell just a collection of short essays from me when all I've written is like a how-tos on personal finance? She said, the world is ready. You know, if you keep writing and talking about your life as you're giving your financial advice, like it will click for people. Yeah. Like you're not just a robot, you're a person and you are funny and you have stories. And I think like, this is you have an audience now like I built this podcast for nine years and have that before when I had these other books so there was a belief that I could market this and people would be interested um so I, when I sold it we sold it as a memoir a collection of essays about living life afraid but somehow things still working out and the title was a healthy state of panic and it was sold but the editor I think secretly had a different vision and so she she ropes me in and then says okay go hit hit the hit the ground start writing start sending her my drafts and then she has like a a come to jesus with me and she's like okay look these stories are funny these stories are interesting but i i think that like let's be real your audience has come to you for financial advice for 20 years um it i think there's a pattern here with fear but i think that the way to sort of marry these two worlds of Farnoosh's creativity and memoir and humor with money is to bring in the money. Like, don't be afraid to do that. Like your life has, you have money stories, your audience has money stories and money is scary. So let's weave that in as well as stories about career and relationships and 
make it a a, 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 a complete book that way. But yeah. she's like, I just think from a marketing standpoint, you really need to like bring it back to your expertise, which I do. But I have to say, I'm still not like 100% clear on how to, it's in all sorts of shelves at Barnes and Nobles. It's in the business yep. section. It's in the like self-help section. It's right. in the mental health section. And that's kind of cool. Um, but it is, it is hard to sort of do the elevator pitch around it. And I will say that, that I've had glowing reviews, but there have been a few people that have been really like annoyed because they thought they were buying a book that was going to teach them how to invest right. or, <laughs> you know, how to roll over their 401k. And I get the nicest reviews even then like, oh my God, this was so great. The stories, but, um, I still didn't learn how to invest my money two stars out of five. And I'm like, oh, no. That's the worst. That's the rejection. That happens. It's like a fear of rejection. As I was reading this and even like sharing my honest thoughts beforehand, I'm like, I don't want to reject Farnoosh and I don't want to expose a part of me that that I, I, you know, I I try to share things that I I feel uh, are helpful and honest. And I was like, God, this must have been so scary Mm -hmm. for her to write something that's different and 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 then just put it out in the world and then have to and have to read the responses because the world is not going to care i thought so often like who is going to care that's a big thing yeah like that's a huge thing i i actually walk into events and i don't know if this is healthy or not you can tell me but i but i walk in and i'm like i'm not the most important person in the room people only care about me when i can make it clear that i care about them and I want them to be successful because if I want you to be, I mean, I'm not threatened by your success. Like everyone's success makes me so happy. And the more I invest in other people, the more they root for me, which is weird. It's like this weird thing. Cause I've, I've been, so going back to rejection. So I've been obsessed with rejection and uh, you know, it's really been the most painful part of my life. And I, and I think that, understanding rejection and i look at at a healthy state of panic this is the first fear is rejection but so much of this is connected to rejection because if you go through each chapter you know there's there's this form of self-rejection the idea of rejecting myself before ever allowing anyone else to reject me so the fear of rejection is really foundational but then the fear of loneliness i have to be by myself and and i want to make sure we talk about your loneliness because one of the tips that I that I share and I'm going to share every year and make it so big is being lonely in college is part of being in college. Being lonely in life is part of being in life. It's it's that is and I know that in the chapter we talk about you talk about I say we you talk about just this this loneliness. Just throw some stats out there. I know they're in the book but I'd love for you to be able to share just how much of a problem do people perceive loneliness to be? It's not a perception. We are experiencing it and right. it is considered, you know, its own pandemic. And yeah. it's like a leading cause of death because what loneliness leads to is isolation, depression. It fuels a lot of the mental health crises that we already have. And so on top of that, we've got social media, which you know, there's two sides of that, right? There's social media exposing us to so much of the world. We're connecting more, but also there's a lot of FOMO that happens and a lot of internalizing. And then you don't leave your house too, because you're just on social media. So you're missing out on the real connection with real people in real life. 
So it's um, someone did a study um, at the universe at Brigham Young, and I think they found that like experiencing loneliness and not having a way to heal from that, it's like smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. It's a killer. And so when you fear it, good. I don't want you to be drawn to loneliness. But that said, it's a fact of life. You're going to be lonely. And there's 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 situational loneliness. And then there's, you know, when you're like, you know, maybe the only person um, on campus because everyone's at the football games and I didn't go. So I was the only one left on the, on campus. And then there's relationship loneliness where you could be actually amongst company and in a relationship, friendship, and you just don't connect. And that does not feel good. And you feel isolated and alone there. So I started with rejection because I think that is one of the earliest fears that we experience in life. Yeah. I, you know, um, I was a different gr growing up and that meant I was just going to face a lot of rejection and I did at school. And then it's like loneliness is this sort of app, you know, you get, you get to experience that as you go through school and then, it, it, and so chronologically there's a, there's a form to the book where I, rather than going chronologically through my life, I went chronologically through these fears that we tend to experience and as a layer onto our lives. The, the last chapter is the fear of losing your freedom, which I don't think any kid feels, but definitely as you become an adult and you start to really open your eyes to the world, you start to really experience that anxiety. You know, speaking to that, I work a lot with first-generation students. Um, I work with students from lots of different backgrounds, undocumented students, and not all first-gen students are undocumented, but different populations of students who do not feel empowered uh, because if they push back on authority right. in any form or fashion, authority will push back with force and limit their abilities to move forward. And I know you express this, you know, with your, with your, with your father and, and your culture and that being here in the United States, there's always this fear of losing your visa, of not being able to have those freedoms. But I think there's so many students who struggle with that. And then even the part of connecting it to, if I don't follow what my parents say, and I don't listen to them because they're paying the bills, well, then I'm not going to have the freedom to pursue my education and to have someone fund, fund my education or, or whatever those things are. And parents will use a, a child's freedom uh, yeah. to control them, you know, whether it's, it's grades, whether it's who they date, whether it's you know, situations with, with gender identity, you know, families that reject their, their transgender kids. Uh, and take away their freedoms. It's a tragedy. So I, it, it was really interesting because I see that being such a part of so many people's lives, and I don't think they always recognize that. No. And when you fear losing your freedom, I mean, first it's like, what does freedom mean to you? It's different yeah. to everybody. And it's not like, you know, the the freedom of being able to vote or live in a, like that, what I talk about in that chapter is more of the sort of the the freedoms that you need to feel like you're living a fulfilling life and you're being true to yourself. So yeah. if, like, and what are those, what are they, you know, like, have you even thought about that uh, in college? I, and even after college, it's, it, I think the biggest challenge is that you're not ever prompted to think 
deeply about these things. And you're always on the go. You're always overscheduled. You're always doing. You're always like, and then you get out of college and you just get into the job or whatever, and you just start making money and start making choices. But you haven't even stopped to think about what is important to you and what what are your non-negotiable things that you're going to fight for. You know, that um, at the end of the day, for me, I realized that my sense of freedom is sourced from my ability to make as much money as I can and be really focused on my career and marry whoever I want. That was important to me, too, because yeah. um, I, I, my parents were in like a pseudo arranged marriage and um, I just felt like that. And that was an evolution because when I was a kid, freedom meant having a license and having my own money. Yeah. <laughs> because what I saw was a lot of women moms who would come and pick up like their daughters at dance class and they would have conversations and I'd sometimes I wouldn't like eavesdrop and they'd say things like, oh, I didn't bring the check for today. My husband writes the checks or, oh, I would never drive myself to Boston. That's so scary. Getting on the highway by yourself. Like my husband takes me everywhere. And I was like, ladies, <clears throat> ladies, you know, I was like six. I didn't say this out loud, but in my mind, I was like, license, money, check. Like that's how right. you're going to win your freedom and your, right. best, you know, and then your, and your mobility. And so but as an adult woman, now I'm in my twenties, I'm like, yeah, that plus, you know, having an education, being in charge of your career, having autonomy, having agency. Yeah. Um, and if it, that ever gets threatened, I'm going to fight for that. And if I'm fearing that threat, I'm fearing yeah. that, like losing that, risking that, I'm going to step up. I'm going to sound the alarm. I'm going to do something. And you got to do this also smartly. You know, if you're an undocumented person, you know, you have to be careful, right? There's, it's like, you got to, you got you you fear exposure you fear all these things yeah so um it's like not maybe doing everything right away loudly but putting some pieces together slowly yeah. carefully with people yeah. you trust it may i mean it makes sense and the progression makes sense going from fear of rejection fear of loneliness fear of missing out fear of exposure fear of uncertainty fear of money fear of failure fear of endings fear of losing your freedom there's so many different fears, and I and I think of the students who write to me, who encounter a lot of these fears for the first time. You know, you fear these things and you experience them. And what this book does is it makes it okay to experience these things. Mm -hmm. It says, "Here I am. I'm Farnoosh. I am in a position of authority and power uh, by virtue of the hard work you've done in a world where." Uh, uh, daughter of immigrant parents isn't really set up to to be successful you've had to encounter a lot of a lot of societal rejection institutional rejection you know uh, unbelievable rejection to overcome so many of the challenges you faced and what i see is this book is really a guidebook that only you could write that gives someone permission to live their life and when they encounter these normal and natural, uncomfortable parts of life, instead of internalizing it and going, I'm not enough and I'm doomed and this isn't going to work, you say, okay, let's be friends with all this, right? Let's, when we face the uncomfortable, and I call it the universal rejection truth. This is what I was getting at with the Winner Learn book. There's a law of nature. It's called the universal rejection truth. It could be on the periodic table of elements, the URT. It says, not everyone and everything is going to always respond to me the way I always want. This is a undeniable law of nature. 
But when we don't acknowledge that this is a law of nature and we internalize it and think we're the problem or someone or something else is the problem, that's when we get so beat up that we tend to blame or blame other people or hate ourselves. And it becomes paralyzing because yeah. you know we can't handle that. So somehow you, and, and I've also for every, everybody who reads this, I like hearing you say all the Farsi. Like Farsi is so, I, I, I don't want to say it's cool or interesting because it's like, you know, it's real, but I'm Jewish and it's like, and, and I don't even, I was afraid of comparing Farsi to Yiddish, but like there's certain terms. Oh yeah. There was actually one word, oi, ey voy, which oh, my, yeah, I, was, my, I said out loud, my brother's, my, my other, his wife's Jewish. She's like, that sounds like oi vey. I said, yeah. yeah, that does sound like oi vey. Maybe that's what they meant. Yeah. <laughs> they got confused. Maybe that's what it is. I went to um, a Persian uh, wedding, Persian Jewish wedding, uh, Jewish Persian, because there's a lot of, of uh, Jewish people from Iran and yeah. are Persian. And I and I went to a wedding, and uh, it was the best. Oh my gosh! Like I am so fascinated by the culture. I'm fascinated by the food. It it was such a. Uh, it just seemed like such a, a wonderful. Just seemed like such a wonderful connected just rich community culturally. I mean, how do you, how do you feel about your about your Persian heritage? I'm very proud. I wasn't always ah, at peace with it as a kid. As a kid I grew up in Worcester, which is was predominantly broke you know, Catholic, Christian and white people, girls named Julie and Christina and I was definitely the only Iranian in my school. And for many years, that was the case. And um, just not a lot of, uh, of of compassion or like patience with anybody yeah. who was different. I remember um, I was going back to my dance class, you know, I, mm -hmm. my mom got a list of things that she had to get for me to get prepared for this recital. And one of them was a curling iron. And she'd never seen one in her life. She didn't know what a curling iron was. My mom's also like at this point, 25, 26 years old. She's much yeah. younger. She had me when she was 19. And wow. so she call, she calls up one of the other moms and was like, uh, what's a curling iron? And do you have one? Can we borrow one? And and then it got became this joke around school, like Farnoosh's mom is so stupid. She's such an like ignorant, you know, and it become uh. and whenever she would come to pick me up at school, if she spoke to me in Farsi, oh my gosh, it was like so terrifying because then the other kids would know that I was different and they would look at me and side eyed. It was just it was just so unwelcoming. I remember in third grade, it was where are you from day? <laughs> and yeah. I I I got up and I told everybody I was Italian. <laughs> <laughs> Did that and like we, we were supposed to bring in a tchotchke or something from home that represented our culture. I had nothing. Um, you know, and I just sat down and I felt so bad immediately. I knew that I had not done I'd done something that was disrespectful and not cool. But I was just the fear was just had overridden any yeah. any other then I went up to my teacher afterwards and I whispered to her, I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not Italian. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm from Iran. And she said, that's okay. You can go sit down. And, um, I lived with that fear for a while. It wasn't until we moved out of that, that whole state, we moved to Philadelphia when I was 14, 15 and, um, went to a school that was much more diverse and there were a couple of Iranians there and, and I, it was nothing. It was normal for, yeah. for everyone to be from somewhere different. And they gave me a nickname. They called me Noosh. And I was like, what is going on? And suddenly I was stepping into my 
Persian pride that um, there were, it was just, you know, it was, a, it was a progression for me. And I think that's a narrative that a lot of probably children of immigrants grew up with, where you're feeling like you're stuck in two worlds. You're trying to a cultural, you're trying to Americanize, but you're also trying to be respectful of your roots and your parents are pulling you in one direction. Your friends are in another way. And it takes a while for you to really, and I think I feel very much, I feel a kinship to my Persian culture and roots. And I'm an American. I was born here. Yeah. It's interesting when I meet Iranians who came here when they were seven or eight, very different association with their culture and and, and their ancestry and everything. And um, I just wish I spoke better Farsi. I do. I wish I had something to give to my kids that could live in them when, um, you know, we I've never visited. I visited Iran when I was a baby. Yeah. Um, I hope they'll, my kids will be able to visit someday. I was crying the other, you know, earlier last year when we, all that, you know, just everything that's going on overseas with um, everyone's, you know, all the fighting and the. It seemed like there was a glimmer of hope, like maybe, you know, I think the tides were turning and the the young people in Iran were finally saying enough. And I said, wow, could I, could you imagine one day we all, I took, I looked at my husband and said, we could all go there. Yeah. I, that is not an option. No. That is not an option. Um, but like, could we, could we, could I actually see this country with my adult eyes and my children too, where they're a hundred, I mean, my kids are 50% Iranian and what a shame if they were not able to. Yeah. Go, what are their grandmother's country? Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. It's, uh, it's, it's, I was going to, I'm always trying to find something positive. That's like my thing. My dad's like, you know, if a bird takes a dump on my head on a cold day, I'll be like, well, at least it's warm. So I was, I was, uh, I was thinking, you know, your book, the, the book, A Healthy State of Panic is wonderful because just the culture and, you know, while you, while you can't necessarily go to Iran and Iran and, and walk through the streets and see the buildings where your family was from, um, you know, the, the culture, and maybe that's part of why, you know, the culture feels so important because while you can't go there, you can bring the cult, the culture and the feeling to, to your family. And, and it sounds like your parents are wonderful and, and really nurturing and supportive. You got fired. Uh, I think that is really important because I just jumped right in. There was no transition. Ah. But, that's, but that's how it felt because you were at the salon. Yeah, I was getting my hair cut. By permission, I was allowed, you know, I was like, it was during the work day, and but I was working on camera at thestreet.com and we were, I had to, you know, I got my hair cut. And I remember sitting in the salon chair and um, a colleague calls and he's like, where are you? I said, I'm getting my hair cut. He said, well, they just pulled everybody into an office, all the, all the people in the newsroom, and then they announced a 10% layoff. And they said that people will be people will be informed throughout the day of their fate. But I'll tell you right now, they're looking for you. They came to my desk. I said, where's Farnoosh? And I'm scared for you. And I was like... I don't even like I, I got numb and um I said, Okay, thanks for letting me know. As soon as I hung up with him, my boss calls. And I'm I have a Blackberry, which, you know, is like a Flintstone phone for all of you listening, like it doesn't exist anymore. But he said, um, Hey Farnoosh, it's Dave and I've got Ronnie with me. She worked in HR. <laughs> I'm getting fired in the salon chair. 
And it was like, you know, firing, not because I was a bad employee. In fact, the week prior to this firing slash layoff, I was told that I was a real asset to the team by the owner of the company. So talk about completely um, right. hot of guard and not expecting this. And then it was the recession and people were getting laid off. My mother had gotten laid off. Like it was a thing. So right. maybe I shouldn't have been so surprised. But from what I understood in my company, in my role, I was safe. And then to find out we're not, 10% of the company's getting laid off. Um, so my boss continues to be like, ah, I have bad news. I just had to let go 10% of the company. And I said, oh no, that's awful. I'm so sorry. He said, that includes you. <laughs> But oh, right. like it was like the punchline. And I didn't really think it was, I, I, I thought I was safe until he said that. I was like, oh, I thought maybe he was telling me to be transparent because that's what you do sometimes. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't there for the meeting. So he's just letting, pulling me in. But he said, no, that includes you. And I um, got my hair cut. You finished your hair cut. I'd already been shampooed. I couldn't walk out there with shampoo without like, I had to get the rinse. And then the blow dry. And then so then I'm like, you know, by this point, I'm just yeah. completely a waste of space. And I remember walking down um, like 23rd Street and 6th Avenue. I still go to this place to get my hair cut, by the way. It hasn't completely ruined it for me. Um, yeah. I still go back. But I remember like jumping into a vitamin world because I needed to talk to like the HR person now. She was going to give me the play-by-play, -play, but what was going to happen next? Right. And the you know, sirens are going on. I'm like, can we? Can I just get back to the office and we can talk about this? But they really wanted to get rid of me. So then, you know, I, I went through all the mo all the things, all the emotions. Right. It's, it's grief. You know, the, the, seven, yeah. the several stages where you're in denial, then you're negotiating, and all the things. And I remember I had a dinner planned that night with a friend. And I was going to cancel it because first of all, I was like, where am I going to pay? How am I going to pay for this right. dinner? <laughs> right. Oh, gosh. That's the but reality. He, but when I called my friend to say I, I got laid off and I don't think I can come to the dinner, he was like, no, uh, my tree, come to dinner. And my friend was an entrepreneur. He ran a, um, a tea company and he was very, he was also the son of immigrants, Korean. And he had a, a, a lovely company that he made. You know, he's like, tea is the number one beverage in the world, except in America. And I'm going to make it the number one beverage in America. Right. And he gave us, we're going to dinner. And he said to me, okay, we're going to toast to your newfound freedom. And, you know, I appreciated it. But I, I said, thank you. But, you know, deep down, I was still reckoning with all the feelings, like the rejection. Yeah. Um, the fear of money, the fear of rejection, the fear of... Um, failure. I mean, I already considered failing this a failure, but like, what? What's next? What's the next failure? Is right. Who's going to hire me after they learn I've been laid off? That I felt like that was going to be uh, yeah. looked upon with a frown. So I went on the Today Show and told the world that I got laid off. <laughs> was the Today Show the, the Today Show interview was right after that? Because I know you uh, like a week later. So I I had been on I had been going on the Today Show up until yeah. that point quite frequently. I'd published a book while working a nine to five and I called the producer and I told her what happened. And she said, um, do you want to come talk about it? I'll just with Matt Lauer. I was like, I don't, let me get back to you on that. I don't, so we, because the point of it being that, you know, I'd been coming on the Today Show giving financial advice and career advice. Right. And what, what kind of better segment than to be like, hey, y'all, I'm in it with you and That's here's what so... i'm doing 
here's what I'm doing. Here's how I'm thinking. Here's how I'm framing this. And well, that, is that that's not the interview in the book that was so money? Is was that oh. the same one? That was a no, that was different. Regular... That was down the road. Yeah, so you because I don't think you wrote. A, did you write about that in the book where you were talking? About I don't think about I wrote about that in the book. No. How do you have more stories? I have so many stories. Uh, I guess I'll have to write another book or just you know give that to my audience and my new. That's so great. I just love. See, I'm obsessed with the rejection piece because we all know you're exceptional and you know you're exceptional, but you were a younger professional who gets fired or laid off, who is used to having a lot of success. You know, like you you really have, you know, you found a way. And then- You can't have the wins without the losses. It's how the market works too, you know? Yeah. If you want to assume wins, you have to assume loss. But if you want success, you have to assume failure. It doesn't, it's not a straight line. It's not always successful. No, it's, no, but that, that part, so many, so many people, especially college students, uh, you know, they just, oh, yeah. they, they struggle, they struggle with this and they don't get it. That's why we have to do more because, you know, I got to figure out, I, I love your stories and we haven't gotten into any of the financial tips. And I, what I think I'm going to do is, cause I asked you to just share some of the financial tips for, for our college students. And maybe what we can do is um, maybe like in July. Um, I don't know if you if you have the bandwidth, but I would love to do kind of like a going to college budget checklist, you know, financial transition checklist. Would you be up for something like that? Oh, sure. Yeah. Or even sooner. Yeah. Whenever yeah. you want. Okay. That'd be great because, you know, Farnoosh is an expert on money, but you're also an expert on life and adversity and working through challenges in, in the book. And for anybody who's starting late or needs to hear it again, a healthy state of panic, Farnoosh really gets into all of these different aspects of when life throws at you a universal rejection truth, like the universal rejection truth of having a job is it's not going to be forever. When that happens, instead of internalizing it, you process it, you work mm-hmm. through that. Even with, um, there's so many great, you have so many great stories. There are a couple. There are a couple other stories that I wanted to highlight because I was just so. I just love the real life experience of actually being in it. You know, you talked about in college how you you were at a school where, and you kind of alluded to this, where there's so you know football, your Penn State. And I wanted nothing to do with it. (laughs) Right. Football days for you were what? Oh, it was a chance to just like lay on the grass in on campus and actually hear some, you know, birds chirp for once. It was just like an opportunity to have the whole school to myself, the whole campus, because everybody, all hundred thousand people were in the stadium. And I mean, I could go to any coffee shop I wanted. I wouldn't have to share the sidewalks with anybody. I could get any seat at any restaurant during the day um and really just practice being by myself which yourself is a life skill that we should all hone um i used to be the person that was afraid and ashamed if she ever had to go eat a meal by herself and now i think it's one of the joys in life to be able to go somewhere and be still and be with yourself and not feel intimidated or nervous about being somewhere by yourself because yeah. um, also if you read the book I was 
I don't know if I wrote about this to that extent, but when I was a kid, I was terrified of being left alone. Yeah. And that's because my mom was also afraid of losing me. She was 19 and new mom in a city. Right. She didn't speak the language or anything. So she just like kept me. I was basically, um, I say I was an appendage to her. And so anytime I, I would never be left with a babysitter, they tried, but it would never be like it could never happen. Um, a substitute teacher came into our classroom one day and I was afraid of his like I was afraid of that. I was I, I thought that my teacher had abandoned us and had brought in the substitute. And I was so scared that I ran to the hallways and I was like screaming, yelling and lots of um parent-teacher conferences, uh, Harlan, as you might imagine, because um, I overreacted a lot around this fear of abandonment. Yeah. So to become this woman who was like, sure, I'll just like hang out by myself, go go, go on a campus with all these people where you, the irony being that, you know, you, you feel really lonely because yeah. you're not connecting with them on cultural things. And um, and finally finding my way. It was, it was uh, but did I mention I met my husband at Penn State? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, that was, there was, I was contemplating there were like two other things I wanted to to cover. And Tim, your husband Tim sounds amazing and you know, just I love that you met him and then you didn't get together for years. No. And when I met him, I felt like I knew him already, which I just learned because I had my chart read. Have you ever done this? Have you ever had your astrological chart read? Uh, oh. I'm born February fifteenth at three AM, which is right before the completion of a moon, and I don't I don't know anything about astrology, but this yeah. I was I was told that I love people it. who are people who are born right before the completion of a of a moon are living their lives in a way where they're here to complete stuff. They're not here to like start new things. They're here to like finish finish a life. And I don't know like metaphorically what that means, but he said usually people like you when you meet important people in your life who will become important people in your life, you will feel as though you already know them. Mm. I felt like this with my husband. And I don't, I just learned this yesterday. So looking back, I'm like, oh my God. And I write about this in the book. When I met my husband, I said, I'm going to marry him. Yeah. When I met my son, when he was born, I was like, I know you. Right. Um, Like I just, like, of course you look the way you look. Like this is how you're supposed to look. And he doesn't look anything like me or my husband, but right. it just clicked. And... So I guess I have this like instinct, but um, I don't know if I should believe too much in this stuff, but I'm I'm at a place in my life where I'm inviting this in because, yeah. um, you know, I need all, I, I'm a journalist. I like to have a lot of access to resources and, yeah. and discoveries and, and, you know, what people think and putting it all together for myself ultimately. But I don't know, how do we get to this place? Yeah, so I met my husband well, at Penn State. Answers. Well, it was that you bumped into Tim you, yeah. In one of your classes, you were taken by him or felt this sense of connection, but yet you didn't act on those feelings fully. No, I was afraid of rejection and he was older and I was a, I was the youngest in the class, um, which I was told I was told. So this might be interesting to your listeners. I was um, really insistent upon graduating in four years, which I really recommend yeah. you can do it like because. If you don't plan appropriately, you could easily end up being in school for five years. Yeah. And that's a lot of money. Exactly. So to get to finish in four years, including a study abroad semester, which would have normally been a four and a half year term, I had to take a lot of advanced classes sooner than later. And this was an advanced class, 
which my advisor said, please do not take. You will fail. You're too green. You're not going to handle it. And I was like, well, let me just try. Like we have a two week grace period. If it's not working out, I will I will drop the class. But I need to at least try to get to this four year finish plan. Right. So I go into this class and I meet Tim and I'm like, I'm going to get an A because I have to because I got to stay in this class and I got to get to know this guy. And it wasn't until after college, after a couple years of living our lives, I was in New York. He was in Pennsylvania. We reconnected that we um, got serious. But it was I think having that foundation of college was so great. And to this day, even though he and I had different tracks in college yeah. and different friends, but even just having that common ground of Penn State, we went, took our kids there earlier this fall. It's so special. Yeah. I love that you interacted, that there was some sort of, because I always tell, tell students, and I'll tell anyone, this is not just about students, this is about life. There's so many parents who are single, uh, are in different places in their life of talking to people, you know, talking to people and engaging with them and being curious just gives you a connection. And, and you did that. Then Tim sent you a message on AOL Messenger back in the day, just saying, hi, you know, what you do, what are you doing? Just wanted to like reach out to you out of the blue, right? Yeah, we were, because we were in class together at Penn State and we did a lot of teamwork. Our teams would communicate after class on AOL Instant Messenger. We didn't have cell phones. We had our computers and we had AIM, which now I'm really dating right. myself. But right. this was still in, this was still being used five years later, six years later. And I was at work and he was at work. And our, our buddy names, mine was Narfoosh. Do you remember what your buddy name was? If you had a name, buddy name. Yeah. <laughs> like if anyone had a MySpace account, like it's kind of the same thing. You have like an, you have like an alias. Yeah. So mine was Har Narfoosh. Harlanimal is like where. Harlanimal. Yeah. That's cool. It's so absurd. There's nothing <laughs> cool about it. It's so ridiculous. Um, and yeah. And so. Fear of exposure. <laughs> yes. Right. And so I, I see his buddy name pop up. His was Tritown Tim because he worked at the Tritown grocery like it. store. It's got, a, it's, got a, it's got a thing. Tritown Tim. And I tell you what, the newsroom started to spin. I was like, this guy's back in my life. I loved him at one point secretly. And I don't think I ever stopped. And now he's back in my life. This is weird. I said, I, I remember it was like right around Labor Day weekend, I went yeah. to the beach with my best friend, Kate, who's also a Penn Stater. I wrote about her in the book. I said, um, you'll never believe this, but I'm back in touch with Tim. And she said, really? I said, yeah, I think the universe heard me yeah. <laughs> when I was 19 and it's committed to making this happen. And I, I'm just going to go with the flow here. But wow, could you imagine if this works out? Yeah, I, I love I love love. Um, I'm not woo woo. I'm not a woo woo person. I'm not like I don't like rub jewels and light candles and yeah. manifest things. I just had an instinct, and then it. Yeah, it's interesting because I might have been like, if you wrote to me in college and you were in that room with Tim, I'd be like, hey, why don't you take a risk? At least let him know you're interested. So, I did have a friend in college who said you should just call him and. Ask him for coffee because you guys are friends. That's what friends yeah. do. They go, they get coffee. There's no like romantic underpinning here. It's just, hey, do you want to get coffee? Because we're getting along. And I, I did call him one day uh -huh. and his roommate picked up 
and there was a lot of laughter. I think it was just they were teasing him. And then he got on the call and he was like, yeah, yeah, let's get coffee. You know, I put in his calendar. Um, but then we never got the coffee. And I think, well, truth be told, he had a girlfriend and I didn't know about that. And I think he was trying to protect that relationship. And maybe he did feel something for me, but just didn't want to didn't want to test the waters at all. And I so that is. Oh, yeah. See, I think when you made that call, I think you really sent out into the universe this very clear intention that I want to spend more time with you. You know, regardless yeah. of what that is, because you took the risk and then you he, 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 you were rejected. And this, but it wasn't because you aren't fantastic. There was a circumstance, but you were someone who was comfortable enough being alone and being with you that you just enjoyed the relationship, the friendship, but then that lingered. It did. It lingered. And I think because he knew that I had made an initial um, outreach in college, he had then the confidence yeah. to reach out to me years later and say, hey, how's it going? Yeah. And see, you know, maybe right. something there. Yeah. Because you're not afraid to go after what you want. And I thought that was interesting because even in that, I didn't know all the nuances with you and Tim because I was curious, you know, and you said, you know, you needed to work on yourself and you weren't ready for that. And, you know, you really want to establish yourself, but you did. And if he went to get coffee, you might have had dinner another time if he was single and available. But I thought that was interesting because it really ties into this emotional risk taking, which is a, which is a runner and and really not being afraid of being friends with rejection, um, which is the first step of I can allow it to be in my life and, and being friends with all these different fears. And you do such a wonderful job for Anush of going through these fears of helping people to understand this is normal, of being exceptional. There's I mean, we can't talk about all the stories right now, but being in the Today Show and, and, and making a huge gaffe during your first big interview and having that be something that turns into something wonderful. You know, this, yeah. this, this, uh, I'll tell you something that just popped up in my life. I've been talking, a student, I, I do some coaching and uh, a student talked to me and I was in this wonderful conversation. And uh, I said to him, I said, hey, do you ever, did you ever see a therapist? And he said, no, nah, you know, I don't like therapy and, you know, therapists have agendas and this and that. And, this is a kid who was sharing so much with me. You know, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a therapist. I'm someone who can listen. I can coach. I can help. But for years, I felt a sense of inadequacy that I'm not a therapist. You know, that I don't have that credential. Like, that would have been so cool to have that credential. I'm a journalist, and I really try to find answers, and I love talking to experts, and I love connecting the dots. And for this moment, I was like, I don't need to be, I don't need to, fear missing out. I don't need to think that I'm less than because- You know, you're enough. You're not. Right. I was enough. And I was like, holy crap. You know, here I am as an adult. Like, I got kids and I'm like, I'm you know, I'm always trying to be affirmed and enough. I was like, damn, this was so good. Oh, it was so good. That's amazing. I went, I thought I had to get a certified, uh, I thought I had to get a certification in financial planning to be taken more seriously in my work, I felt like I wasn't convincing enough that my body of work and my own research and was not enough. And I think, oh my gosh, I mean, 
it's always like that, right? You always yeah. feel like you always there's always a, a shortcoming. You always feel like you know you're always measuring in comparison culture. You know you're always yeah. comparing yourself to others. I mean everywhere human nature. I think that's what I really want to at the very minimum people to appreciate about their fears is that when they show up that oh my gosh you're just being a human being and it doesn't mean that you're weak or coward or you're incapable right Right. i have one last question for you today and we'll do it to be continued and we'll we'll dig deeper into finances and you know we can get some q a and figure and figure out a way to really get people ready for the financial transition but these are this book your approach your stories so so needed but Farnoosh, I want to understand when you're going through all of these life challenges and facing rejection and loneliness and fear and, and loss and all of these different aspects of your life, how did you know that you were enough? Well, it takes a little bit of mining to remember who you are and what you have achieved. You know, as humans, we have a tendency to, it's called the 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 loss aversion fallacy, I think it's called, where we tend to obsess over failures and things that didn't work out and missteps, which are actually seldom in our life. You know, it's not like every day you're failing huge. Most days you're winning, but we don't tend to appreciate those or remember them and retain those experiences as much as the moments when we felt pain. Yeah, We don't remember the joys. So it's about really being um, insistent and proactive about remembering all the, your patterns in your life. Like you got this far, you know, for a reason. Yeah. And maybe the failures and the rejections were protection all the way. Maybe those had to happen. And and, and I mean, it takes time helps. You know, I, I don't think that um, you're going to know this right away and, and instinctively in your 20s. But I think I've always, here's the thing, I've always leaned on the wisdom of people older than me. And this I get from my mom. She always loved to, if we were at a party, she would find like the grandmother and talk to her. And I was like, Mom, you know, why are you doing that? Like, you should just talk to your friends and your people your own age. And But she, I think there was, yeah. maybe she didn't even realize at the time, but she was really drawn to the wisdom of older people. And also I think the attention, my mother was missing her mom. So that was part of it too. But I always, and I mean, um, you know, my top five in my phone, it's, you know, my husband and then I've got my girlfriends who uh, like are in their fifties and I'm in my forties. And I think that's um, intentional and maybe um, subconsciously intentional, but I think I I gravitate towards people who have lived a life. I want to learn from people who can look back and say, don't do this, try this, do it this way. So that's important too, as you're trying to work through these fears is is having that perspective of someone older who can give you the wisdom and the look backs that you, yeah. that you don't have because you haven't lived life enough yet. That makes a ton of sense. It makes a ton of sense. I lied. I have one more thing I need to ask you. Okay. Your parents, you didn't go to Iran when you wanted to go to Iran to cover a story. And your parents, and this is an example of a kid and parents clashing. You wanted to go to Iran to be this heroic, strong, powerful journalist to cover a story that could put yourself in danger. And your parents expressed their feelings and you made a choice. And I want for anybody out there who has parents who have very strong opinions and they think, you know, I don't, how do you know when to listen to them and how do you know when to just go for it? 
Yeah, I got out of graduate school for journalism and I wanted to, you know, you get out of that program and you're just like, oh my God, I'm going to like solve all the world's problems. I'm going to, you know, and I thought I need, it's like not a want, I need to be in Iran because who else better than me? And it was right after 9-11, we had the war in Iraq and Iran was a neighboring country. I thought, perfect, I'll go. Um, I'll tell stories that have never been told before to really share the beauty of this country and blah, 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 blah. And I'll stay with my relatives. It'll be great. I'll, it'll be good for me, for my job. Blah, blah, blah. And all my professors were like, please do it. Here's how to do it. Here's the consulate. Here's the 800 number you need to call to get your media credentials. And, and I was calling all the places, Newsweek, New York Post. I said, I'm going to be a stringer. They said, great. So I was like, I am doing God's work. And I tell my parents over breakfast one day and my father just says, he turns white. He's already white. He turns whiter. He's like, they will kill you. Do not go. They will kill you. And he, by they, he meant, you know, the Islamic Republic. Right. And I said, dad, you're being crazy. Like you're, I get it. Like it's not safe, but I'll be careful. And plenty of journalists do this. And he said, but, and you know, he was right. And I didn't want to believe him because I felt that he, what I felt like he wasn't being mindful of my passions, you know, like here, oh, I felt like this was a clash of my father trying to step in and um, once again, you know, tell his daughter to be really rational and not pursue her passions. Right. And and I just said, no more. You know, I got to go. And this is like, this This will be the foundation of a career in war reporting. I'll be the next Christian Amonpour. And you like her. How do you think she got to where she is? Um, and then, you know, I, I so I left that breakfast saying, no, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm just going to like, this is it. I'm going to like really go against what they want for the first time, really, and and doing this. And then the next weekend, I have lunch with a friend who's American. And she said, your dad is right please don't go. And it was like listening to now a friend who's got no skin in this game, except that she's a friend and she loves me and isn't coming at it from any real other perspective right. than just knowing the facts. And she said, yeah, I don't think this is the right time. And so for me, it became a decision of what do I value more? You know, it was a, ultimately, you know, I said to myself, what would be happiness for me right now is to practice journalism, um, feel like I'm making an impact, and yeah, I'd like to live. So that's not a small thing. I'd like yeah. to reduce my risk for death. And that summer, there had been some journalists that had been imprisoned. Um, there was a reporter from Iran. Oh, sorry, she was Canadian. She'd gone to Iran to do, and she was credentialed, and it was like she was allowed. But she was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and she pa she died. She was killed. Right. So this is making the news. So this is like kind of what's happening behind the scenes right. or in in the news. So it wasn't just like they were imagining. It was right. like this is there was evidence of this. Right. But I I was really stuck because I was like, but all my professors, I've 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 told people, and there is accountability for me. I have to go, you know. And it seems like the path is paved. And they said, well, you know, how much do you want to live? <laughs> said I do want to live so you know not that maybe it would have been a 20% chance and that's that's still a big you know sure. I don't actually know like no one's done the numbers but 
I just, um, he said, it's not just you either. It's your parent. It's your family that's there. That's protecting you. That's also putting their lives on the line. Right. right. So, you know, I was the triple threat. I was the journalist, um, Iranian American whose parents left during the revolution. That's three things that the government there just did not value. And actually you were the enemy now. So, um, I was really going there with, um, already behind the eight ball. So I'm glad I didn't go. And I think the way I rationalized it was, you know, I can maybe go another time. Like right now things right. are really tense. You can extend I'm- the timeline. And there is, and I think that extending the timeline, talking to other people and really getting a perspective from people who aren't just the people who have the same last name is, is so important. And that was a big decision. I thought that was a really important moment because you're so powerful in your thought process and you you are unstoppable, but you had a situation where you had to really contemplate and use fear and all of the different layers. Unfortunately, you have people around you who want you to be happy and successful and aren't working against you. And I think that that's, that can be a real struggle. And, and you know, ultimately, how do you make decisions that, that go against the people who love you the most and care about you the most? I think that's really some of the hardest things, hardest choices we're faced with. And and, I, and I'm happy. I'm happy getting to this point in the conversation because I think to really be who you are and to look in the mirror and to be comfortable in your skin, it is a it is a journey, and yeah, it's the ability to look at the fears you face and to become friends with them that can ultimately put you in a place where you can live in a life in alignment with your light. And be forgiving of yourself and know that if you have a long life, there's lots that you can do during that time. So this has been wonderful. Um, thanks, Furnish, for being so generous. Oh, likewise, Harlan. Thank you so much. This was one of my favorite interviews. And I've been looking forward to this for so long. And I'd oh, love yeah. to have you on So Money. Oh, well, that makes me, you know, that makes me so excited. Um, I know, I was telling staff, that's my wife. I'm like, I'm like, I'm so excited to talk to Farnoosh. I go, I just feel like, I just feel like we're going to know each other a long time. And, yeah. And I mean, I really thought I knew you from like, did we work together ever before? Like the before times? Because I was like, I, first of all, your name, I'm like, I know Harlan and I know I've known one other Harlan maybe in my life. Yeah. There might've been some intersection and in something we wrote. I mean, as a journalist, probably. Right. We've done. Yeah, I mean, I'm like a fringe kind of guy. Like, I, I, you know, like, I, this podcast is the best thing in the world for me because, like, I get, to, I get to interact with people and, uh, and, and I think our paths have crossed or we had mutual friends, but I don't think we've ever, you know, I don't think I've shared a space with you or met you before face to face, but like, I've seen you and I, and I remember you did the, the improv thing. I remember on Facebook because I found you on Facebook. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. But Farnish is amazing. So, all of you, I <laughs> highly recommend a healthy state of panic. Follow your fears to build wealth, crush your career, and win at life. Farnoosh, this is going to be a, to be continued. And we're going to talk yeah. about financial planning and readiness for college students, all that. But I really encourage you, all of you, as part of your required reading, to check out this book. And I'm going to do a lot. I'm going to share this everywhere. And I'm thank just so grateful. So this is so fun. So thank you for being so generous. And thanks for being here. Anytime. Thank you. And thank you to everyone for listening and, and sticking around. Thank you. All right. We'll, we'll continue this. Thanks, Farnoosh. Thanks, Harlan.